Parshas Chaye Sarah. The life of Sarah. This week's Parsha opens up with a discussion of Avraham trying to procure a burial site for his beloved Sarah. And he enters into negotiations with Ephron Hachiti, Ephron, who was the landlord of the Maras Hamachpela, this cave of, for some reason, Avram wanted this particular cave. Why did he want this particular cave? Anyone know why this one? So there, there are actually lo- lots of reasons brought down. We'll see one of them today. Emma, if anyone has her podcast, she discussed it in her shir today. In the Zohar, it discusses how this cave is actually the entranceway to Gan Eden. Okay. But um, we'll see elsewhere, actually, in last week's Parsha, when the, there's another medrash that says when Avraham had these guests, these three angels come to his house. So what does he do? He has to make a meal for them. He goes and starts cooking bread. And then he goes to get cow to slaughter them. One cow runs away. He chases after it. It runs into a cave. And in the cave, he smells this beautiful fragrance. And there he sees is Adam, Harishon, Adam, and Chava. They're buried there. Adam and Eve are buried there. So that's another image of why that there. We're going to come back to actually that reason in a minute. Either way, whatever the reason is, he decides this is the grave he wants. And he enters into negotiations with Ephron Achiti for this grave. Ephron at first says, oh, sure, you can have it. Take it. It's yours. And before we know it, Avram ends up paying an exorbitant amount for this grave. Why does he pay so much? Because he wants to have the deed for this land so that he can always prove it's his. And that's what happens. And this is one of the proofs, by the way. This is one of the, or not proofs, one of the analogies when we talk about some people say a, say a lot but do a little. Well, here's a person who said a lot. Yeah, sure, it's all yours. And then ultimately, he didn't follow through with his work. Now, we're out. He did that. Well, he had a realtor, and and, and Charles was the uh, was the realtor, the, the lawyer, because you're retired. Okay. Now, Actually, the, where, where I want to open. Wrong, the guy stood in a place. He said, "This is where the closing took place." Excellent. So where I want to open up with today is not with the story of Chayisar, but I want to go way back to the beginning, to our initiation, to our introduction to Avram as a person. Why? Because, you see, there's actually a machlokas, there's a debate. We all know Avram was subject to ten tests. Avram had ten tests. God tested Avram ten different times. But there's a bit of a debate what exactly those tests were. However, everyone agrees, while some say that this, actually, our parsha, where the procurement of, procuring of the grave was a test, everyone agrees that the beginning of meeting Avram, our introduction to him, lech lecha, Go for yourself, Avram, Lech Lecha, leave the land of your fathers, leave the land, leave your home. That was a test. So here's my question for you, and I know we're going back two weeks, but we're going to come full circle. Vayom Rashem al-Avraham. Two weeks ago, we all read together, God says to Avram, Lech Lecha, go, which Rashi says, Rashi reads it, Lech Lecha, Lahanosho Latavoscha. Go for, not just go for yourself, but go for your good. Go for your benefit. From your land, and from your birthplace, from your father's house, the land that I will show you. All right, we're not going to spend time on that actual pasuk, but God commands Avram to leave his home. Now, the first question is, what test was this? Now, granted, he had to leave his home, but if God came to you and said, Harry Elias, 
do the following. Would you not listen? It's one thing if, right? It's one thing if maybe God said it. Again, we all, we believe in God and we have God's word. But if God knocked on your door and said, do something, I think we would listen. In fact, isn't that what we all want from life? Like imagine if we had the certainty of God coming to us and, God, and knowing exactly what God wanted to us with 100% certainty. Like that's, that, that, isn't that what we all want? And it's actually an interesting question to come up in a few weeks' time when God comes to Moshe and says, Moshe, here's your life's mission. And Moshe is like, actually, I don't know if I want that. It's like, Moshe, come on. I wish someone told me this is your, my life's mission. So God's saying to Avram, like, okay, maybe it's difficult from the perspective of you've got to leave your father's house, although it's interesting to point out, maybe next year we'll discuss, Terah, Avram's father, went with him. So it's not even like what he was leaving his father's house. He was leaving his father's, the house he grew up in. God was said to him, Avram, you should go. If God says do something, so where's the test? It's not like we read in a book and the rabbi said, God said go. What's so, what's, what's so hard? You have a certainty here. You have a mission here. Okay. And I'll, make, I'll, make, I'll, I'll compound the question. And this is the question. This is asked by the Shemi Shmuel. The Shemi Shmuel. Hello, hello. The Shemi Shmuel was a great Hasidic rabbi. His father was the Avni Nazer, who was not just a Hasidic rabbi, but also a great halachasis. So he asked this question from his father, the Avni Nazer. He asked as follows. His name was Bornstein, I believe. Avram Bornstein. He says, if you read the text, not only did God say to Avraham, go, but why did he tell him to go? Go, as we just pointed out a minute ago. Go, lecha. Go, lahanascha. Go for yourself, for your benefit. Not only that, when you go, go gadol. You will go and I will make you great. Go, you have been childless for all these years. You haven't had any children. When you go, you will have children. Unfortunately, I'm sure many of us have known people who have suffered with infertility. How much money have people expended? Where have people have gone in order to, in order to have children? The, the effort people go through, the pain people go through. The amount, of, the amount that people have go to, they go to the end of the world to have children. And here, God says, if you go, you will have children. Isn't that enough of a motivation to go? Not, much, not a test. Let's take, let's take out what goes on. It goes on. And then he says, the Eslego Gado, he says as follows, I'll give you three brachos. Shetiv klobanim, mamon, and I'll give you money. Avram, you're just a regular guy. You will become... A man of colossal wealth. You think winning the Powerball of $2 billion in lucky person in California, that was something? You're going to become the wealthiest person imaginable. I mean, if people, money, we know what people do for money. People steal for money. People do all sorts of crazy things for money. And here it's like, Avram, all you got to do is just walk away from where you are right now, move somewhere else, and we'll give you money. I mean, people relocate their jobs, their families, for, 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 for money. So what's so crazy here? How is it the big test of Avram? Oh, Avram, we'll show how you're the knight of faith. You're a man of faith because you're going to leave your house in order to become a wealthy person. It's not so, where's the test here? Come on, what's, what's the test here? And I'll take one more. So not only Avram, are, are we promising you. Not only is God telling you what to do. Not only are we promising you children, which everyone dreams of. Not only are we telling you to become a wealthy person, but lastly he says, he, he says, 
You are a little Avram. No one knows who you are. When you go out there, your name will be known everywhere. But people do everything for publicity. People want their name to be remembered. People do everything in order to have their name known throughout the world. That's something people want. They want to be recognized. Well, now you will be Avram, will be recognized. Everyone will know that's Avram Avina walking through the street. And not just for your own self-aggrandizing, for your own, uh, just because you're arrogant, but because maybe you'll have an influence now. You know, sometimes people have a, have a large platform. I was listening to an interview this week with Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg and um, Myers Leonard, I believe his name. He's a basketball player. So he got into some trouble about a year and a half ago because he said some sort of anti-Semitic slur when he was uh, on, the, on the Internet. And over the last year and a half, he has been doing tshuva, if you will, if you want to call it that, where he's been spending a lot of time in the Jewish community in South Florida, learning with Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, and really trying to learn about his mistake. He actually didn't even know it was an anti-Semitic word. It was an anti-Semitic slur. And he didn't want to come forward, interestingly. He didn't want to come forward and let people know that he was doing this because he thought people would just say, the only reason you're doing this is because you want people to think better of you. And the only reason why he came publicly to let everyone know that he has been doing this teshuva was because after everything else going on in the world, he wanted to kind of, you know, with all the other celebrities who were saying anti-Semitic things, he wanted to let everyone know that, um, that look, you can do teshuva, there's a way to ask for apology, and there's a way to, uh, to you know, promote goodness in this world. So in this interview, when he's ta- talking about, again, what it's like to learn about the Holocaust and what it's like to learn about the Jewish community, Ray Goldberg says to him, which is, he said to him, you know, you have this unbelievable opportunity because you have this platform. And I don't know how many people here have social media, but on your social media platform, he has millions of followers. Which means, you know, if, if little rabbi whatever writes something, maybe a thousand people see it, two thousand people see it, you, Myers Leonard, you write something about the Jewish people, or promote Israel, or promote some sort of Jewish cause, millions of people will now have a positive view of Israel, or have a positive view of a Jewish cause or the Jewish people. So Avraham, you will have this ability now that people will recognize this is Avraham. You will have the ability to have a platform where you can really have an influence. So now ask the question again. It's not my question. What was the challenge? What was the test, Avraham? Lech lecha out of the land, and you'll become great. You will have money. You will have a family. You will have a platform. You will have honor. You're following what my command. Is there a challenge here? What is the challenge? What was so great and so, and so laudable here that we're saying to Avram, this is the first or one of your tests? Yes? So at that time, wasn't Avram's mission to bring monotheism and the belief of God to the people? Wasn't Alec what he was doing through the Tathamazon? We spoke about that Correct. previously. So before, yes, there is an aspect of uprooting your whole life. But before, it's like, oh, well, this God and that God and this. And, but here, it's like, it's, it's a test because nobody has follow this one God or this one idea before and it's like something new. Okay, so we're going to develop that in a minute. Any other thoughts? Who likes the question? Anyone like the question? Okay. Okay, so let's... So, okay, so quickly recap the question. The question was, is, we said Avram had ten tests. One of his tests was he was told to leave his household, leave his, home, his homeland which is a great task to leave everything you know. But we pointed out, God said, when you leave, we'll make you astronomically wealthy. When you leave, we'll make you famous. When you leave, you'll have a family. And you're following my command with certainty. It doesn't sound like much of a test. It sounds more of like it's a cause-benefit here. You pay a little bit, and you get great returns. What's going on here? So here's what I want to argue. And this is where Rabbi Salvage, it really comes from Rabbi Salvage, a thesis 
We're going to develop firmer base Soloveitchik, something he spoke about very often, because it's somewhere, again, it's, I think it's a tension that he felt very much being the person he was, as we discussed, or Soloveitchik was someone who was at one hand very much ensconced in the world of yeshivas, the world of of Torah learning, the world of his father and grandfather, someone who, again, spent his days learning and teaching Talmud. Yet, on the other hand, he was someone who had a PhD in Talmud, who taught philosophy, who very much understood and was part of the modern world and felt that tension acutely of what it means to be part of the modern world, part of modern society, and yet also part of the world of Talmud, which is a tension, if you will, if you look at you know, to, you know, the more right-wing world, the more left-wing world, and then the, the world in the middle, and kind of there's always that tension of where do you prioritize, where, do you be, where, where are you at? So this is the tension I want to talk about today, and this is what was happening. What I want to argue is the challenge, perhaps, of Avram. The test was God was saying to him, yes, you're going to have a family. Yes, you're going to have money. Yes, you're going to have influence. But that's going to require you to leave the comfort of what you know, leave the comfort of the domain and the home you've created for yourself and enter into a place where you're not necessarily comfortable, where you can't curate what's going to enter into your, what, the, the influences that you're going to encounter, where you can't control everything that's going, to, that's going to come your way, that you're going to now have to deal with a society, a, outside, a secular or a society that has other influences, that now you're going to be a man of the world, partially it's because you want to influence the world. But because of that, maybe it's going to, you're going to use the money to influence the world, you're going to use your power to influence the world, but you're no longer going to be someone who could just sit in, let's call it the base measures that you created in your own home, and because of that, it has its own challenge. And perhaps the challenge here, the test was, Avraham, don't just sit alone. Don't just sit alone believing in me. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. But the challenge is going to be, you're going to go out, you're going to create a family, you're going to raise a family. You're going, to have, you're going to have children, you're going to have the money, the influence, but you have to do it in a place where there's going to be the challenge, the struggle, and also the beauty of a society and a culture that ha- is going to have values that are both in conflict and also, in, and also work in consonance with your own values. So that is, I believe, the test. And that's what I want to develop today. Any thoughts, questions, comments? Yes. Well, I just have a question. Yeah. When I think of Abraham and Sarah, I think of a tent in the, in the desert with open walls. In fact, is that where it lived? Isolated? Or it, I mean, I don't know what kind of communities there were at that point. Was it like just a kind of thing? When you're saying going out and influencing people, there were communities? Well, let's put, it, let's put it this way. Last week's parasha opened up. He had a tent. It was open on all four sides. Right. Three men come in. Says, says, says Avram, wash your feet. Why does he have to wa- wash your feet? Rashi points out because they had sand on their feet. And it wasn't because he was afraid of making his house dirty, but because he was concerned these were the surrounding tribes who worshipped the sand, which means he was welcoming in people who he knew were idol worshippers into his home. So whoever he, wherever he situated himself, he was now entering into a place that was hostile to his worldview so that he can have an influence, okay. and which, is my, which is what I'm trying to – the idea is – and not only was he going to have an influence, but he was also going to be influenced, both positively, but also then it could have a negative influence as well. Yeah. 
So it brings to mind this one story about uh, the Lubavitch Shaliyah, the rabbi. I don't know if I want to go here. I'm uncomfortable and this and that. So the, 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 his rabbi says, go anyway. That's what I want to discuss. So why am I discussing this today, this challenge today? So in this week's parasha, and this is the jumping off point, when Avraham is discussing with Ephron, when he's negotiating to purchase this land, he says the following, this is on the bottom of the source sheet, on the first page, he says the words, Ger v'toshev anochi imachem. I am a resident, and I am a stranger among you. Says Yerba Salavechik, this is a very funny formulation. I am a resident, and I'm a stranger. Well, which one are you? Do you belong there? Are you a citizen of the country? Or are you an illegal alien? Are you someone who just has a green card? Are you someone who doesn't belong, you're just passing through? Are you a guest? Which one are you? Do you own the home or do you rent the home? Do you own the home or do you, do you, hold, you have the deed to the property or are you just a guest there? Which one are you, Avram? What do you mean, I'm a resident and I'm, a, I'm an alien? I'm a resident and I'm a guest. Make up your mind, Avraham. What's with the schizophrenia? What's with the, 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 what's, what, what are you doing here? And says Rabbi Salavitch, because what Avram was telling us was this is what it means to be a Jew. In Gullus. This is what it means to be a Jew in the diaspora. This is what it means to be a Jew living, it means the diaspora, not just in the diaspora of physically living in America, or Poland, or Lithuania, or Australia, but what it means to live in the cultural milieu that's foreign to the Jewish culture, and a foreign culture. That on the one hand, we're a resident. We believe in living there. We believe in not only taking from there, but also giving, participating, being an active participant and member of that society, which we'll develop in a more in a minute. But at the same time, there's also the tension where we recognize that we have our own unique misower, our own unique tradition, where we see ourselves, therefore, as a stranger. That there are certain aspects to living, even in America, as comfortable as we are, well, we're apart. We can't partake in. We can't be a part of. We say that that's not for us. That our, although the culture says one thing, we say that's not our belief. That we do things differently. That we believe in things differently. That we define things differently. We're on the one hand a ger, we're, and we're a toship. We're a stranger and we're an alien. Uh, and, we're, we're, and we're a dweller. We live, but we also, we also rent. We, we live, but we also, we also are a resident, but we're also an alien. And this is a theme that really animated a lot of Resalvechik's thought. This ger and this toshev. So what I want to do is look at a couple of examples of this idea of being a resident and being a stranger throughout history. Throughout history. And I think it's a very fascinating idea. So the first one I want to look at comes from a letter from Chaim Ozer Grzynski. Who was Chaim Ozer Grzynski? If you look at a little blurb there from Wikipedia, he was the undisputed Gadol Hadar. We don't, we, we usually, the Gadol Hadar meaning the main rabbi, the head rabbi. We don't often use that. We often use the term Gadol Hadar. It's a name we like to use. The big rabbi, the big rabbi. But we don't often say the undisputed. In Vilna, right before the war, he died, you see, he died in, uh, in 1940. So he died really as the war broke out. He was the rabbi in Vilna. He, he basically orchestrated that all the yeshivas... Came to, or, uh, came to Vilna from all over Poland and Lithuania they, they, they came to Vilna and they ended up kind of operating in Vilna until the authorities got pretty upset at him but he became the leader the go-to all questions both in halachic matters in philosophical matters in what to do, where to go how to, how to navigate these, in these terrible, terrible times he was the leader he was a man of unbelievable brilliance and unbelievable sensitivity so he was, 
he has his following letter. This letter was written on April 15th, 1939, which was actually, it was Moti Shabbos. And I'm going to read to you the, begin- the end of the letter, and then we're going to read the beginning of the letter. So we're going to start with the end first, then the beginning. Anyone here, when they read a novel, read the end first? <laughs> you read it, oh, you shouldn't admit that publicly. <laughs> okay, so we're going to read the end first, and then we're going to read the beginning. He says as follows. You see, it's on, it's on, it's on the second page. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a photocopy. I couldn't, get a, I couldn't get a translation. I'm sorry. Again, it's April 15th, 1939. He says, He says, He goes, Behold, I call out to all of our, bro- our fellow brethren in the Jewish people. Behold, Medina's Poland. Among all, in all of the, the, the uh, country of Poland, she has dirzu lishtatev behalaval lahagos medina medina gedolu lurhacha ish ish kviyachotom that everyone should strengthen and should mizari should with alacrity should gather together to give in this to give as much as they can bein yotzim in a klal and no everyone should give lowers my to Paul b'shar rabbis achir to kazu in this very dire times kinachonim hinein alacrit meitiv kosno lahabe kol hak he says, he basically said, I'm calling everyone together. Everyone, without fail, everyone, according to their ability, should gather together and give what they can. And our dire, dire, because of the dire, dire predicament that we're in, to give money to this cause. 1939, April 15th. What cause is he talking about? Neo-Nazi. So what, 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 what are we giving to? To find a way to protect ourselves. So get, out of, get out of the country. Get out of the country, right? Mm-hmm. Get out of the country. So let me read you the beginning of the letter. Are you ready for this? Hine, Abidin Darakadosha. Yeah, I would think, right? The Gadol Hadar is writing a letter, probably. There was a, some sort of, you know, the, the, some sort of fund in order to fund either the yeshivas, right? The yeshivas, where, where, by the way, the yeshivas that ended up in Shanghai. They, 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 it was because those yeshivas that were in Vilna. Maybe to, to help fund those yeshivas, to the, the Bachrim, to get people out of, out of Vilna. So, Hine, this is written again. It's <laughs> This letter is written to all of our brothers in all the all streets and all of the areas of Poland. Hashem Aleichem Yechil. God should have life upon all of you. Hine, Apidin Torah Kadosha. According to the law of our holy Torah, on the tomb of Darz, Shamachas, we have an obligation to uh, seek peace for our host country, Ubishlom and for the uh, and for the and for the and peace, not just for the host country, for the government, but also for the country itself, as it says, Vedarsh Shalom Ha'ir, to seek peace for the uh, inhabit for the for the city. V'isbal ba'ado al Hashem ki b'shlomo yiyu l'chol shalom. And so, because we have an obligation to seek peace for the country that we live in, my brothers, B'nai Yisrael, my brothers, the Jewish people, so too now in our land, Poland, we are now dwelling in this land of Poland along with our, the other citizens of the land of Poland, and it's become a center of, not of spiritual life, right? Poland was the spiritual center of the Jewish people. It's a place where there are many great uh, rabbinic leaders and great yeshivas. 
and he goes on to say, and even in there, and even further, furthermore, the Polish people have sacrificed their lives for us to protect us in the, early, in the earlier war, etc., etc. Therefore, right now the right now the crazy situation that's going on in Europe in 1939, the the, the uh, nation of Poland, the the country, the the uh, government of Poland needs money in order to fund their air force. And therefore, when he said everyone should give what they can, he's asking everyone to give money to the Polish Air Force. 1939. So I want to point out a couple of things. Number one is he obviously had no idea what was going to happen. Because as both my bubbies said independently, two different sides of the family, the Poles are worse than the Nazis. The Poles are worse than the Nazis. He had no idea. What's happening here, just if you want a little bit of the historical backdrop, was, so we're familiar with... We're familiar with that in, in, in the September of 39, Hitler invades – Hitler has the, uh, Riven, the Riverentrop uh, Treaty with the Soviets. He invades Poland. They, 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 divide Pol- they divide Poland up. That we're familiar with. That we're familiar with. Um, and, okay, my, my – actually, my bubby just passed away, so her family is caught in, 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 the, in between that. She was from Ravna, which was in, the, which was in Poland, and what happened was is the um, – I believe the Nazi, the Germans came in, but then turned the area over to the Russians for two or three weeks to do what they wanted. The Russians took all the able-bodied men away, which is included my great-grandfather. He thought that's the worst thing possible. The Russians are taking me away. Literally, you know, then the Russians returned that land back to the, to the Germans who wiped everyone out. So that saved his life. So he went to Siberia. So, that, so that's, what, that's, that's what happened in 39. This was in Ravna? In, in, in Ravna. Yeah, that's where the Lichtenstein. Interesting. So that was that was in Ravna, Mezrich Ravna, that that that, that area. It's a, it's a area. What so what what happened was to give a little more background. That about five years earlier, in uh, about 35, Hitler signed a non-aggression pact with Poland, which he essentially in a week before the invasion in 39 in August of 39 he reneged on. But in, in about, I think it was 35 or 34 he signed his non-aggression pact. In 39 in March. He already knew that he was – I mean, everyone knew. He already invaded, I believe, Czechoslovakia at that point. He said to the Poles, we are going to – you're next. And in March of 39, it became public that he was going to the, – the, the British leaked to the, leaked the public that he was going to – that he set his, his eyes on Poland. Now, at that point, England still had their, uh, their, appe- their uh, policy of appeasement. right? Never, never Chamberlain's uh, great mistake. Their policy of appeasement, and they basically said, we're, we're, we're not going to do anything. But they said, it in the event you do invade, we're going to attack. That was in the Danzig region, which point Hitler's like, they're not going to do anything because they're England, and they're just they're – they're bluffing. So he – already by March of 39, not only did it become public, but Hitler already had the plans for the invasion of Poland in, for that September. So it was all set in place by Mar- in March. Come the beginning of April – and early April, and Poland was informed all negotiations are off the table. As in, it's all set in stone. It's, it's going to happen in a matter of months. So now fast forward to two weeks later, April 15th, Rev. Grzynski is writing this letter saying Poland, is clearly, Poland knows they're going to be invaded. And Poland knows they need to beef up and revamp their army because, again, the, although there is a non-aggression pact – 
Hitler doesn't care about that, which we saw. He, he just totally usurped it and reneged on it uh, a week before he invaded. So please support the Polish government and the Polish army, which, again, we saw it didn't help because we've all seen those pictures of these, these tanks just running over the Polish army, which was just a bunch of men on horses. You've seen those pictures? Mm-hmm. You've seen those pictures. So this is what's happening here. But what, what, the reason I'm quoting it all to you today is because we're seeing here this is what it means to be a resident of the land. Where Rav Chaim Ozer is not just saying give money because our own safety, but he's also making an argument that we as residents of the land of Poland, we have a moral obligation that we are contributing to the society, the greater society of Poland. The country's given so much to us, and we are members of the society we give back. It's actually very interesting. It's reminiscent of, you know, think about two weeks ago, last week, where there's a, I believe it's a letter from Ramosha Feinstein, which he wrote in English, that says we have an obligation to vote in America. As it's a Medina Shulcha said, it's done so much for us, and it's a little we can do back is to vote as well. I mean, you should also vote because the politicians know that for some reason Orthodox Jews don't vote. It's just the thing. It's the, the Hasidim. The Hasidim do. The Hasidim do. But Orthodox, for some reason, most Orthodox Jews don't vote, and therefore we don't have the same clout the Hasidim have. But I, I don't want to get into that now. So number one is this, this amazing letter from Chaim Ozer in 1939, where he's making this argument that we have an obligation to 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 give to give money to the Polish government, which, by the way, is nice and flowery. He's talking about how wonderful the government was to us. I asked my buddy, so what was it like before the war? And she told me it wasn't too rosy. They were still, you know, it wasn't like one day the Poles woke up and like, we don't like the Jews. They never liked the Jews. But he's still saying as members of the society, we have an obligation to give, and therefore he's making an appeal, which almost sounds like he's making an appeal for Tzedakah. The Yizgar appeal, the Kolnidri appeal, everyone should give to the Polish government, to the Polish army. So that's, that's number one. Number two comes from a, from a Pusik in Yirmiyahu, which, is, which he alluded to, which the... Um, which um, was alluded to in, um, in this letter from, from Rav Chaim Oser. This Pasuk is actually, it's interesting, the way in which I always read it, I read it more as a, as a negative. It's a negative. It's discussing right after the destruction of the first temple. Yirmiyahu comes, Jeremiah comes to the Jewish people, who are now sitting in Bavel, sitting in Babylonia, sitting in Bavel, and they are, don't know what to do. And what he says to them is as follows. So the sofer comes that Yirmiyo sends to the Jewish people, and he says to them, um, "Sorry, let's skip around. You see, it's over here on this page here. So says God, So says God, who I exiled Build houses, live in them." Plant gardens and eat their fruit. So the way in which I always learned this was, it was almost it was like you're not going back. It's over. This is like miayish. Give up hope. Just go build your houses. This is almost like it's a curse. Like you're done. But I think the way which Ray Salvici is learning it is actually not that way. He's saying to them as follows: you're, This is now going to be your new home. You're now going to be living in this country. So rather than just wallowing in despair, rather than saying you know what we just as much as we always say, you know, next year in Yerushalayim, next year in Yerushalayim, we, we, we wish and we hope, to, and we say, Yerushalayim, we don't want to forget Yerushalayim, but there's also an element of having to move on to some extent. Not moving on that we forget Yerushalayim, but having to recognize that life must go on. You know, the Gemara in Baba Basra says, the Talmud in Baba Basra tells you, we can't, we can't live forgetting Yerushalayim, but you can't only live 
thinking about Yerushalayim. There's a balance. And therefore, Yermayo is saying to them, quoting God, you can't just wallow in the despair, sitting by the rivers of Babylon, singing the dirges. But rather, now you're living in a new country. Reality is, you're not going to go back for the next 70 years. Build your houses. Invest in the place you're living. Plant gardens. Eat their fruit. You've got to start living, and not just living, but investing in the place you're living. Doing things that aren't just enough, not just to have a roof over your head, but you're planting gardens. You're doing things that are cultivating the society that you're living in. Take wives, have children, etc. And then he says, Seek the welfare of the city which I have exiled you to. Seek the welfare for the city that I exiled you to. Not just seek the welfare, but daven. Daven for the city that I sent you to. El Hashem. For in its prosperity, you too shall prosper. Seek the peace for the city that you are in. And this is, by the way, the source for the Tzvi'ilah L'Shalom HaMadina, the prayer that we say every Shabbos, where we ask Hashem to, to, uh, for mercy and, to, and, to, and the prayer that we ask Hashem to give um, peace and prosperity to America, our host country, that comes from this verse in Jeremiah, where, we're, where Jeremiah says, Whatever country you find yourself in, seek the peace of it and pray to God for the peace of it. And ask God, one second, ask God, by the way, ask God to, to uh, enlighten the people, enlighten the leaders, that they should have our best interests in heart. That comes from here, again, because ultimately, not only should you live there, develop it, cultivate it, seek the best of it, and daven that it should, be, it should do well and it should prosper. Isn't there something in Pirkei Ovis that yeah. Correct. It's based off this. It's based off this as well. Because yeah. if you don't have it, then everyone will eat each other alive. That's the right. language. You know, there's also the, 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 the I know there's also we, we recognize that the concept of Dina de Machus Adina, that the, 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 the law of the land, again, to some extent, becomes our law. Again, there's always it's, it's a caveat there. If they, they say things that are explicitly against the Torah, it doesn't become it. If they say that Shabbos is no longer Shabbos, it doesn't work that way. But if they say, you know, taxes, then taxes become taxes. So we, we recognize that we, are, we too are subjects to the law of the land. There's an interesting discussion, which I'm not going to get into now, but how, much, how related are the Sheva Mitzvahs B'day Noach to the Taryag Mitzvahs, to the 613 Mitzvahs? How related are they? Are, is it a separate, they have their seven and we have 613, or are our 613 an outgrowth of the seven? Which is interesting, you know, an in, I think an interesting, um, an interesting way of also looking at this, but I want to get into that as well. Lastly, again, in this discussion of the resident and the stranger, before we move on to the last part, is what we opened up with. Why is it, the, the Pasuk says, Thomas Sarah Kiryat Arba, Sarah dies in the place called Kiryat Arba. Why is it called Kiryat Arba? Says, says Rashi, Al-Shem Arba Anikim Shayusham, because of the, the, uh, Four anikim that are there, um, and then the four giants that are there, and others say no. I'll shame Arba Zugo should Nikbrusham because of the four pairs that are buried there. Who are the four pairs that are buried there? Well, we have the three avos, Avram, Mitzak, and Yaakov, and their respective spouses, and Adam and Chava. I think what's very interesting about that, and it's not me, the Rabbi Salvechik points out. Again, this is, all, this is Rabbi Salvechik in the parsha. It's all the insights coming from him. Well, I think the lesson there is that. There's a, there's a direct, uh, not just a parallel, but an outgrowth of humanity here. That, that it's not like the Jewish people and then uh, the rest of humanity, but 
Adam and Chava, we're part of the same chain. We're an outgrowth of Adam and Chava as well. And therefore, we are residents with the rest of humanity. We have the, a, a, a certain continuum of Adam Chava to Avram, Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov and Sarah, Rafka and Racha and Leah. Again, all this, Rabbi uh, uh, Salvechik developed this idea that we are, we are residents in the land. And just to f- finish off, before we move on to the next part, the stranger part, he writes as follows. This comes from Avram's journey. It's over here in the, uh, you see the box. Modern Jews are integrated into Gentile society in a hundred ways. Economically, politically, culturally, socially. Since we live among Gentiles, we share in the universal historical experience. The universal problems faced by humanity we also faced, are also faced by the Jews. Famine, disease, war, oppression, materialism, atheism, permissiveness, pollution of the environment. All these are problems which history has imposed not only in the general community, but also on the covenantal community. We have no right to tell the rest of mankind that these problems are exclusively theirs. So it's a very powerful idea. That all, I think there's a, sometimes there's a, a bit of a, almost, I don't know what the right, right way to put it, a cynical way of putting it, that some of the more social justice issues, and it could be, again, because of the way they are framed, but some of the more social justice issues, that's for them. And we have our issues. But what Salvatic is saying that, again, oppression, materialism, atheism, permissiveness, pollution of the environment, that these are, these are imposed not only in the general community, but also in the covenantal community. We have no right to tell the rest of mankind that these problems are exclusively theirs. God has charged man, when he says man, he means all of humanity, with the task of fighting evil, of subduing the destructive forces in nature, and transforming them into constructive forces. The Jew is a member of humanity. As humanity uh, being, as human beings, Jews are duty-bound to contribute to the general welfare. God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish and the sea and over the fowl of the sky and over all the beasts that tread upon the earth is addressed equally to non-Jew and Jew. As human beings, Jews are duty-bound to contribute to the general welfare regardless of their treatment accorded them by society. It's a very powerful idea. You know? And just one last caveat to that, Rabbi Salvechi believes that part of his idea of the kifshuha, of conquering this earth, which Adam and Adam was commanded in, is to address these sort of issues, to address disease. That when someone goes out there and fights disease and tries to find a cure, that's fulfilling the divine command of Vikifshuha, of conquering this earth. So what he's trying to say here is that that is, a, that, that is addressed to humankind and not just to, not just to the non-Jew, the Gentile, but all of us are in this same idea of being a resident. That being said, there's also an element of us being a stranger as well. Now, I don't want to run out of time. That happens every week. And this is where we're going to start. At one point, Avram, we mentioned this last week, Avram is called Avram Ha'ivri. Avram Ivri. What, is, what do we mean by Ivri? So we touched upon this a few weeks ago, but I want to really develop it. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Nechemi, Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda Omer, what do we mean by Avram Ivri? What does the word Aver mean? It means over, other. Kola olam kulo me'aver echad, vuhu me'aver echad. And this is fundamental. Says Rabbi Yehuda. Says Rabbi Yehuda. All of the world is on one side of the river, and Avraham is on the other. Everyone is on one side, and Avraham is on the other. 
And this is definitional. And what he means by this is as follows. I don't think, and I know that, he doesn't mean that there are times when the Jew is apart, is separate, because of anti-Semitism. That is definitely true. That is certainly true. That is a fact of history. But that is not definitional. That's a reality that we're subject to, unfortunately. And we should never allow that, by the way, to be definitional. We do sometimes, but we shouldn't. You know, there was a book that came out about a year and a half ago by Dara Horn called People Love Dead Jews. Anyone read that book? You heard it. Dara, she, 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 she lives around here, I believe. She lives in She's from Summit, right? Yes, yes. So she makes this point in her book. She makes a couple points in her book that are very interesting. One of them was, and I shouldn't be getting on a tangent now, but it's, 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 it's tangentially related. Uh, she says that we, people often say, you know why anti-Semitism is bad? Because it's often the harbinger for the rest of the ills of society. She goes, that's not a reason why anti-Semitism is bad. What you're effectively saying is anti-Semitism is bad because then they're going to come for me. Right? That's what the famous uh, what the pastor said. At first they came for the Jews, and no one, I did not speak because I was not a Jew. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak because I was not a trade unionist. And then they came for the socialists, and then they came for me. Like, what you're, you're saying is I don't really have a problem with anti-Semitism. I have a problem with them coming for me. So it's, you know, anti-Semitism is bad, but it's not definitional to who we are. When we say Avram was he was on the other side. What we mean by that is that there are times where there are things that we believe as Jews that are just going to be totally different and alien and separate to what the rest of society believes. And it's going to be uncomfortable at times. People are going to think we're funny, we're weird, but that's just how it is. And maybe we've been there when it comes to practice as well. Not, I think it's more uncomfortable when it comes to belief. But anyone have to dive in a mincha ever and you're in a public place? I, I knew someone who one time told me they, uh, they were in, a, I think it was Grand Central, back when they had payphones. So they had a dollar. That's what they do. They didn't want to hog a payphone, so they saw a broken payphone. So they went to Davin Mincha. It was a nice five-minute Mincha. They backed up, hung the payphone up, again, it's broken, turned around, there's a line of five people behind them. <laughs> so we've been there when it's uncomfortable, but I think, I think that it's, it's, it goes beyond, it goes beyond that. It goes to the fact that how do I put this? That uh, let's put it this way. This is the way I heard Ronald Bianchi put it a couple weeks ago. It's based on the Ram. The Raman points out there are things in life that are true and false. There are things in life that are good and bad. True and false are things like one plus one is two. One plus one is two. You can say it's just true and false. There's no way to get around that. Everyone agrees one plus one is two. If you think if someone tells you one plus one is three, one plus one is three, it's they're wrong, and we all know they're wrong. Then there's then there's good and bad. There's good and bad. That can be more subjective, such as stealing. I can tell you stealing is, stealing is good and bad. If someone tells you, no, stealing is objectively f- wrong, well, you go to a communist society where no one has property, and like, it becomes a little more subjective. So what the Rambam says is as follows. Once Adam ate from the eight Hadas, once Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, things that were supposed to be objectively true, as in the morals from the Torah, started becoming good and bad. They were subject to the corrosion of being able to become more subjective. Like stealing. That suddenly you can have a society where stealing becomes okay. Communism, it's okay. It's not necessarily a problem. Whereas beforehand, people looked at stealing as objectively bad. It was like true and false. This is what the Raman writes in Moran Nebuchim. So this 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 is the way I guess to look at it. 
that every society over the ages, there were certain things that seemed intuitively right and we said were wrong. Or seemed intuitively wrong we said were right. I'll give you an analogy. When I say idol worship, right, we kind of laugh at idol worship because it's bowing down to sticks and stones. It seems ridiculous. The Gemara says as follows, that Menashe, the great king Menashe, was an idol worshiper. One time, Rav, who was an Amora, comes to him in a dream, and say, he comes to Rav in a dream, and Rav says, how can you do this? How can you worship an idol? It's ridiculous. And he says to Rav, have you been around when I was around, and you, know, and you live in a society where people bow down to idols, where it was an intuitive thing to do? You would have picked up your coat and ran to bow down to idols. Meaning to say as follows, because we had these questions. How could good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people? Intuitively, we all assumed there must have been different gods. How come there's fire and there's water, two properties they don't get along? Must be two different gods. It just seemed the intuitive thing. And therefore, because it was the intuitive thing, that's what, we, that's what everyone assumed. And for someone to come along to Avram and say, no, there's only one God, you're crazy, Avram. We laughed at him. You're ridiculous. You, you, what's wrong with you? He stood on the other end of the river. He was alone. He was an iconoclast. He was someone who seemed totally different. And that's why he went against the society. More than just, I think now it's like, oh yeah, he said about Azar is wrong. I was wrong. Like, yeah, of course, everyone probably thought, no, no, no. Wasn't everyone thought that. He literally was alone, the only one, when everyone said, you're so backwards, you're wrong. How can you say something so backwards? Kind of like I spoke with the Drosh a couple weeks ago about the Kid Hashem and Chil Hashem. Now we said that Avram was making, looked like he was making a Chil Hashem because he was sacrificing his son, really was making Kid Hashem because God said so. That's what it looked like. I'll give you another analogy. There was, there's a midrash in Eichel Rabasi, which is one of the midrashim. It talks about when the Beis Hamidrash was destroyed. Okay, this is a midrash, it's all allegorical. God goes to the do- the doorway of the of the uh, intellectual elites of the Christian world. Goes to the doorway and puts his ear to the door to hear what are they saying? What are they saying about the Beis Hamidrash that was destroyed? And this is what he hears. He hears, either he hears they say there's no God, because if there was a God, clearly God would not destroy the base of Megdash, or he hears God has abandoned the Jewish people, which is a claim, which this Midrash is really echoing the claim that we hear echoed throughout most of Christian theology until Paul comes, the, Pope Paul comes along and gets rid of it. It's, it's, this is, um, this is suppression, uh, replacement theology. What's replacement theology? Anyone familiar with this? It's the idea that was it very, uh, the doctrine in Christian theology was very much influenced much of Christian theology that the Jewish people were the chosen people until the Christians came along and God replaced the Jewish people with the Christians. And by the way, what was the proof? What was the proof that God did this? So for all these years, the Christians were able to say, because look at the land of Israel. Were, are the Jewish people there? No. No, no Jewish people there. It's a land that's desolate. It's empty, destroyed. And look at the Christian world. It's built up. It's beautiful. Look at Rome, how beautiful it is. Look at the church, how glorious it is. If the church is beautiful, if the church is glorious, if the church is thriving, and the Jewish people are scattered throughout the world every other year being buffeted and destroyed by other, another anti-Semitic pogrom, well, who's correct? Who's right? This was the claim for so many years, which is why, by the way, which is why it took so long for the church to recognize the state of Israel. Because by recognizing the state of Israel, effectively they were saying this replacement theology was wrong. Which is why when Paul did it, it was such a it was such a cataclysmic and, and uh, event when it happened. But the same woman said that, um, that even though they might be the new chosen people, the, the old covenants could not be revoked? I'm not, I'm not sure. 
but 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 if I yes yes correct 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 yes yes yes. But my point I'm trying to raise here is as follows. So in the Middle Ages, the intuitive thing was to be Christian. If you live in Christian land, here was again two people, one 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 people that was evicted from their land, their temple was destroyed, it was sacked, the people. People were murdered. They were scattered throughout the world, again, subject to all sorts of pogroms and crusades throughout history. And then you have another people who has this glorious, glorious kingdom. You know, look, think, look in France. Look in Spain. The, the church is just <laughs> on the rise. Well, what are you going to be? This, this people, what, what, who are you going to choose? It made sense to be Christian. It was intuitive to be Christian. And to, for the Jew to say, no, I'm not going to be, you were going against the grain. You were going against, you were being Me'aver Hayardin, you were being, on the other side, you were being Avram Ivri, you were being an iconoclast. The idea here, the idea, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to drive here, is that Avram being, the idea of Avram, of being the stranger, is that we have always, always had this element to us, not just as physically, but also in theology, in thought. And the way we approach things where we believed in things that were seemingly intuitively against what everyone else was saying. That when everyone else was describing things and defining things and saying things one way, we said no. We have a different Mesorah. We have a different tradition. We have a tradition that comes back from our fathers and our grandfathers, going back to Moshe Rabbeinu, going back to our Sinai that says things otherwise. And let's be honest, yours is not going to last. Where is that Christian Mesorah? Where is that Avodah Zarah Mesorah? Where is ours? And that's what it means to be Avraham. To be, have to what Rabbi Salvechik says, to be a knight of faith. A knight of faith. To be an iconoclast. To be able to stand there proudly on the other side and say, I'm able to withstand everyone, the jeers and the, and the laughter and the people saying, you're crazy. And that, what he says, that's the last line. To, and then to experience this tension. To experience the tension that on the one hand, on the one hand, saying, I still, I'm not going to walk away from it. I'm not going to sequester myself in some sort of monastery and just live in my land, but I'm still going to lechelcha. I'm going to go out. I still want to go out, and when I go out, I want to participate in the land, raise the money for the land, Ex- recognize that the, the command to, to cultivate, the command to heal, the command to be involved in the world, that's universal. But at the same time, there's an element of that we have our own unique Mesorah and our way of looking at things. This tension is precisely what it means to be in an elected community, descendants of Avraham. This is the tension that we all feel to some extent, some more than others, and maybe some of us should feel it at other times more than we should. But it's the tension of Ger Vitoshev, being a resident and a stranger. Wish you all a good Shabbos, and any questions, comments, or thoughts? Good.